Thanks, Kathy, and uh, thanks to the worship band for leaving, leading us in worship this morning. I was really pleased that we, we actually sang the line, we give him all the glory um, as part of our worship this morning. So in many ways, that's the theme of the sermon today. Those of you who were here last week or who have caught up online um, will know that last week we, we looked at 2 Kings chapter 5, at the first half of that chapter, the healing of Naaman. And... Um, when I was originally planning this series, I thought, ah, it's a big ask to do it all in one go, but oh, we can do it. Yeah, go on. And then midway through the service last week, I looked at the clock and I thought, no, nah, there's no way this is going to work. So this is kind of part two. I've shuffled the, the, the series slightly. And um, this, is, this is part part one was last week. This is, this is part two. And it actually, it works much better that way. Um, because last week, we, we, looked at, we looked at the healing of Naaman. And just as a, a quick recap, we, we, we considered... We considered the way that God, God is in control. And we looked at this story where we have, firstly we have Naaman, a general of the armies of the kingdom of Aram, Damascus. And he's an incredibly powerful man, the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Um, but right at the start of that passage, we're told that the Lord had given him victory in battle. So God had kind of been guiding his career, even though he wasn't one of God's people. And so we see God working through what would have been called Gentiles in the New Testament. We see God working in, in a much bigger picture. He's not just focusing on his people, a selfish God that says, don't know the rest of you. I might have created you, but no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't got a good future for you. He was working on a much, much bigger plane than anybody realised at that time. But he was also, as well as the really, really big high-level picture, we see God working through a servant girl. She's unnamed. She's only mentioned in one or two verses of Scripture, and yet she plays a pivotal role in the big picture. Because... She's been taken captive from her family in a raid on the borders of Israel. She's a servant to the wife of, um, of Naaman. And Naaman has this skin condition. It's something, it may have been leprosy or certainly something very similar. And this servant girl, who had every reason to be bitter and to think, huh, good, that's God's judgment, he, he deserves it. Instead, she doesn't do that. She thinks... I know a God of peace and love and, and who cares for everybody, so I want to share him because I think he can help you. And so she speaks to Naaman's wife and Naaman's wife speaks to him and like every good husband, he does what he's told by his wife. And he goes to the king of Aram and he says, look, there's this prophet in Israel who can, who can help. And the king writes a letter and off Naaman goes into Israel. And he takes great wealth with him. And the king of Israel is really angry because he, he thinks, well, you come to me to heal you, I can't do that. Um, but eventually, Naaman gets sent to Elisha, and Elisha is God's prophet, God's chosen prophet. Naaman turns up at his door, and one of Elisha's servants comes out and says, um, you need to go to the River Jordan and dunk yourself seven times. And Naaman says, this is unbelievable. I've come to see Elisha. He sends out one of his servants. He can't even be bothered to come. Does he know who I am? Does he know how far I've traveled to come here? This is just downright rude. But eventually, as Naaman goes off in a bit of a huff, his servants go after him and say, oh, come on. If he'd asked you to do something really hard, really challenging, some sort of daredevil feat, you would have done it. That would have suited your, your macho pride. But he's just asked you to go and have a wash in a river. What's to lose? 
So Naaman realizes that it's a fair point. He goes, he dunks himself seven times, and we're told in Scripture that he comes up out of the water after the seventh dunking, and his skin is, is like that of a, of a newborn. It's pure, it's, it's unblemished. The illness has gone. And so Naaman responds um, with wonder and with worship, and he's, he's thanking Elisha, he's recognizing the power of God. He says, I recognize now that there is no other God in the whole world except for the God of Israel. And Elisha tells him to go in peace. And that's kind of where we, where we left him last week. But it's certainly not the end of the story. <clears throat> I'm just going to read from verse 19, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 19. If you've got a Bible with you, then feel free to turn to the passage. If you want to grab one from the pews in front, there are some, or chairs in front, I should say. Um, well, pews on the balcony. But 2 Kings chapter 5, it begins with the moment Elisha says, go in peace. And he's sending Naaman off. Naaman has said, if you won't take, if you won't take a gift, if you won't take gold and silver and some, some form of payment, then can I at least, can I fill some sacks with some soil from Israel so that when I get back to my temple, I can, I can lay this, this sacred ground out from the Lord's country. I can lay this out in my, in my country and that even though I'll be forced to worship their gods, I want to worship your God because your God has become my God because of what he's done. And so he's, he, he takes this soil and in verse 19, Elisha says, go in peace. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything was all right. Gehazi answered, my master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a, a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the, t the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. When you split this, this chapter in half, it can feel very much like um, well, you read the first half and you think it's heading towards a happy ending, a happy, glorious ending. This is going to be great. 
And someone came up to me after the service last week and said, Tom, um, I'm not going to be around next week, but I've just read the second half of that passage. I've, I've never read it before. And, and basically everyone gets leprosy. I don't know, I don't understand it. I'm going to have to listen online. So I do hope that person listens online because, yeah, this can be read as a passage where you think, what's God playing at? What an awful thing to do. This is, this is terrible. Suddenly, suddenly leprosy has been taken away from one person and given to someone else. How's that good? How's that something to be celebrated? But as I said last week, this is a passage which is rich in what it teaches us about God and about our attitude to God. Now, first of all, I don't want us to be too harsh on Gehazi. Whenever we read um, a, a, a story about one of the bad guys in Scripture, Judas being a classic example, we sort of, it's almost like a pantomime villain, isn't it? You say the name and you almost expect the congregation to start going, booze, because we can give people a really hard time. But actually, as I, was, as I was planning for this, I thought to myself, I'm not that different to Gehazi in so many ways. And I reckon there's a lot of people in here who would also fall into that category. I know that I slip into Gehazi mode probably at least a dozen times every summer. And what it looks like is this. Joe invites some people round. I say, great. Joe thinks about the food. She goes shopping. She buys the food. She prepares the salads. She prepares the potatoes. She does the pasta. She does the rice. She chops everything up. She gets it all looking really, really nice. She gets the meat. She makes a marinade. She leaves the meat to soak for the right amount of time and, and marinade and do stuff. Um, she gets, um, she gets more than enough, she gets the, the bun, she worries whether she should get brioche or, or, or an alternative, whatever that is, and she gets all, the, all this stuff, and stuff just appears in the house. And she puts in loads and loads of work, and the day before she'll be planning and preparing and getting everything ready. And on the actual day, she'll make sure that there's drinks in the fridge and that the food's being prepared, and everything is getting ready and ready and ready. And all this time, if I'm honest, I'm doing nothing. All I'm doing is looking forward to, to the consumption. And then what happens is I go out into the shed, and I lift the barbecue out of the shed, and I put it on the lawn. I get a bag of charcoal, I chuck it in, a couple of fire lighters, I light a match, I stand there and do nothing for another half hour or so. Joey then brings the food out, put the food on the grill, I stand there. And after she's put in three or four days' worth of work, I stand there doing this. <laughs> and that's about it. People come round and they eat and they have platefuls and they love it and it's, it's, we have a brilliant time. And on the way out, you know what happens, don't you? They say, Tom, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That was really tasty. That meat was brilliant. Oh, thanks for all your work. And I, I, I sort of, I make the comment. Well, it's nice for Joe to have a break, isn't it? <laughs> About a dozen times a year I do that. You see, I take all the credit and I, I don't deserve any of it, any of it at all. 
I mean, obviously, still do it when you come round, because it winds her up something chronic, it's hilarious. But it's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. And I reckon, fellas, come on, I can't be the only one who's guilty of that most summers. Yeah? Yeah, good. At least, at least there's one more person. Yeah, I reckon there's more. But you see, that's, I'm taking the credit for someone else's work, and I totally don't deserve it. And instead of saying, oh, look, I've, I've done nothing, it's all, it's all been Joe, instead, I, I take it, I lap it up. Because we love to take credit for things. We love to, to be wanted, to be appreciated. We love it when people want to lord us with compliments, or in this case, gifts. And so I don't want us to be too harsh on Gehazi. This is not a story which we should read and judge him, play the role of judge. Instead, this is a story we should read and we should say, whoa. I don't want to be falling into that trap again. I want to learn from this. Because we don't really learn very well, do we? Indeed, this is a point where Gehazi certainly hadn't learned. He was a servant of a servant of God. Now, he was a servant's servant, in other, in other words. He wasn't a man of wealth. When he was offered, when, when, when he saw Naaman being offered this, sorry, when he saw Elisha being offered this wealth by Naaman, it would have been more money, more wealth than he had seen possibly ever before. He, he was not a wealthy man. And so perhaps he could be forgiven for, for being a little bit wide-eyed and, and wowed by what was before him. But he was no stranger. He was no stranger to the consequences. You see, being a servant to God's chosen prophet, he would have been very, very familiar with scripture. And God made it absolutely clear what would happen in this circumstance. You see, we can read these stories in the Old Testament sometimes and think, oh, God's really overreacted there. You know, he must be having a bad day because that is not a very godly reaction, to be honest, God. I don't know what you were playing at, but I don't like that. But, but God gave his people a very clear set of rules a clear set of laws and the consequences that would happen if those laws were broken. And Gehazi was in a position where it was almost inexcusable for him not to have recognised it. In Exodus 20, one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above on, or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And when we talk about jealous gods, I know some people really struggle with that because jealousy is something, something negative, something um, we think, well, it's not good to be jealous. Surely God can't be jealous. But what God is saying is that he's jealous for us. It's out of love. He loves us so much that when he sees us making an idol out of something else, when he sees us drifting away from him and putting something else at the front and centre of our lives, he feels a, a, a pang of jealousy. Because he thinks, I love you so much. I just want you to love me. I just want that relationship. Don't, don't have, fall in love with something which cannot save you, something which cannot help you, something which in the, in the bigger picture is, is of no worth or value whatsoever. And so God himself describes himself as a jealous God. But this is, a, this is a, a, a positive jealousy, if you like. It's a jealousy born out of, born out of love for us, because God knows what is best for us. And he makes it absolutely clear. 
that the consequence will be serious if we do this. Punishing the ch- your children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so when we read this account of Gehazi, becoming obsessed with the wealth that was offered, being horrified that Naaman had turned it, so that Elisha had turned down the offer from Naaman, instead of accepting, instead of thinking, that's what God's prophet has done. I'm going to honour that. Maybe I'll ask him about it, but that's what he's done. I can accept that. Instead, he turns and goes behind the back of Elisha. He follows Naaman. He lies. He says, my master sent me. That's a lie. He says, two, two men from the company of prophets have just come to me. Well, that's a lie. And then he gets back when Elisha asks him where he's been. Your servant didn't go anywhere. Well, that's another lie. Three times he lies. As soon as, as, soon as his focus is taken away from God and, and he, he starts focusing on something else, starts making a, um, a, a God out of something else, this becomes his idol, this becomes his focus, this becomes his heart's desire. As soon as his heart is not focused on God, suddenly the lies and the deceit creep in. His sinful nature comes out. And three times in a very short space of time, we see him lying in order to profit. You see, when God, when God does something amazing, when we recognize God doing something, we shouldn't accept it as our own work. We must be prepared to to reflect the glory of God, to say, hey, this is, it's very kind of you to say, but this isn't, this isn't praise for me. It can be really difficult sometimes. <clears throat> I remember when I first started preaching, after a service one Sunday morning, I was standing on the door at the church, and um, uh, I wasn't the minister there, but the minister, who, the minister of the church was there, and um, someone went out and said, oh, thank you so much, that was a wonderful sermon. Thanks, Tom, thank you. And I said, hey, it wasn't, wasn't me, it was God. And the minister said, it weren't that good. <laughs> Which I thought was a great comment. But it can be difficult because people are kind and, and we should encourage each other. And I've often said, you know, we should be a people of encouragement. So we should give encouragement to people. And please, I'm, I'm no different to anyone else. I need encouragement, so I'm grateful for comments like that. But at the same time, we must always make sure that when we receive that encouragement, we recognise that God is the true, true deserving one of the encouragement and of the praise and of the glory. We should give all the glory to God. There are biblical precedents for this. We see when Abraham had just won a battle in Genesis, end of Genesis 14, the king of Sodom says to Abraham, give me the people, the, the, the slaves that have been taken in the battle, keep all the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strip of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Abraham was giving all the glory to God. 
He wanted God to have the glory. He wanted the, the king, didn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, well, I, I, I reimbursed. Abraham did me a service. I paid for it. Abraham wanted to make sure that there was no one who could be reimbursed for the, 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 the victory in battle other than God. In the book of Daniel, Daniel's brought before the king, and the king says, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. See, Daniel didn't want to accept the gifts. He wasn't, he wasn't doing this because he was getting paid for it. He wasn't going to be wowed by the, by the purple robes and the gold medallion. That wasn't his style. He knew that he'd been given a gift by God and he was using the gift. He, hadn't, he didn't have any magical power or anything like that. He was simply being used by God. And when, when we see our actions resulting in something wonderful that's answering the prayers of people or even our own prayers, it's not through our strength, it's through the strength of the Lord. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, when Simon saw, Simon being local sorcerer, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I, I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit from me. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And he tells him to go away and to repent. You see, again, we see an example of, of someone, someone carrying out a service, the laying on of hands and healing taking place. But the, 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 the response of someone who doesn't know God is, how much is that going to cost? Give me some of that. I'll, I'll pay for it. But our response should not be seeking monetary reward. It should be seeking to glorify God. Sometimes it can be difficult. I am um, on the back of my office door. I've got a couple of bits of A4, and printed on them is 14 rules of ministry, which were put together by one of my preaching heroes, Fred Craddock. He was an American guy. He died um, about five years ago. Um, but he, his his preaching and his his approach to preaching had a big impact on me when I was at college. And number six of his 14 um, rules for for, for preaching and for ministry, it says, learn to live with the fact that there are few, if any, clues to your effectiveness as a minister. Both popularity and unpopularity are absolutely worthless as tests of the value of your ministry. Now, I don't think that's purely for ministers. I think that goes beyond that. I think that actually for all of us, we can be massively popular or massively unpopular we can, we can be flavour of the month or, or, or shunned, but that's no indication of how effective we're being as a Christian. The servant girl at the start of the story of the healing of Naaman, we never hear anything more about her. We never hear that she gets set free and returned to her people. I'm pretty sure that she stayed in captivity. 
It's questionable whether she even knew that she had had any impact whatsoever by speaking to Naaman's wife. This story reminds us that God is in control. There can be awful things going on in the world. In the opening prayers, I listed some of those things. Kathy also alluded to them in her prayers. There are some dreadful things going on in the world at the moment. And if we, if we get into the habit of, of taking the glory for every good thing and thinking, hey, great, thanks, yeah, aren't I good? Look at, the, look at everything, I, look at all the barbecue, look at all the food I've done, knowing full well that it's not us. If we get into the habit of taking credit for everything, you know what? That means we have to get into the habit of taking the blame for everything as well. If every good thing in the world we, 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 we're happy to accept the, the glory for, every bad thing in the world as well, we feel the weight of it. Oh no, how's this happening? This is awful. What can I do? I'm powerless in this. And suddenly the weight of the world gets upon us and we feel downtrodden and beaten. And it's heavy because we can't make a difference on our own. But if we get into the habit of, of reflecting the glory and giving the glory to God, then that means that we're also in the habit of giving all the bad stuff to God as well of saying, Lord, I don't know what to do about the conflict in Ukraine, about the earthquake in, in Turkey, about all these, the, the, the corruption and, and lies that seem to be rife in, in, in the world at the moment, in all the other awful situations going on, we can give them to God in prayer because we see from this story that God is working in the minutiae of the individual's life as well as in the highest level of government and power throughout the world because he is the Lord of all the universe. He is the Lord of all the universe. In Matthew 5, Jesus was midway through the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his people listening, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He goes on, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may, be, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we should, be, we should be the salt of the earth, the ones preserving the goodness of the earth. We should be the ones who, who make the difference and stand up for what's right. Stand with the persecuted, seek to, to feed the hungry, to, to, to clothe the homeless, to give shelter, to show love to people. That should be what we do. But by seeing us doing that, they should see the glory of God in heaven. We should be the ones illuminating the world, taking, shining into areas of fear and depression and angst. There's so much uncertainty in the world at the moment but we have a hope in Jesus who said that one day he will return he will make all things right but in all we do for him as we do our good deeds as we seek to stand up for what is right 
as we seek to reach out into our community and, and to serve those who need to be served, to help those in need. We must make sure that we don't fall into the trap of making it all about us. We must make sure that we're not doing it for our own glory, for our own gain, for our own benefit. Churches can even sometimes fall into the trap of doing something for a cheap headline. I hope we never fall into that trap. I hope that everything that we do is for the richness of the glory of God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. We must never be focusing on our own selfish desires. We see in that passage in Exodus 20 that I read earlier, God takes sin seriously. We live in a post-Jesus world. We've seen the cross, we've seen what Jesus has done for us. But let's not be flippant in our approach to God. Let's make sure that we take seriously the responsibility of following Jesus. That we take seriously the commands to make sure that he remains front and center of our spiritual compass. That we remain focused on him. And that nothing else distracts us and causes us to, to turn away, to turn off track. There are so many distractions in the world, but let's make sure that we stay focused on Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word and for the richness and the depth that we find within it. Lord, we thank you for this story that we've, that we've studied last week and this week. We thank you for the way that we've seen you working in the lives of the individuals but we thank you also, Lord, for the reminder that no matter how bad a situation may seem, no matter how awful the world may feel, no matter how many terrible headlines and bits of news are flying around, Lord, you are sovereign. You are in control. You have absolute authority over heaven and earth. That you know each and every one of us. And that even when we look around us and see heartbreak and tragedy and fear and everything else in the world, Lord, you are in control. And we are called to have faith in you. A faith that is not easily bought or distracted. A faith that is true. A faith that is absolute. A faith that is strong and unshakable. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son into this world to open up 
a pathway to salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. But Father, we pray that in our own lives, we will never be flippant in our approach to you. Instead, we will remember that you take sin seriously. That you love us so much that it pains you when we do something that is destructive to ourselves. And Father, we pray that as we see you answering prayers, as we see good things happening, either in our own lives or in the world around us, Father, may we make sure that we always glorify you, that we always seek to to celebrate what you've done for us and what you do for us. So Father God, as we go out into the world this week, we pray that you'll help us to remember that you are all that we need and that we can face whatever the world throws at us as long as we remain focused on you. So Lord, bless us, we pray now, as we, as we worship you again, in Jesus' name. Amen.
some, some reason for good news. It's good news that we had, um, I think, about 12 guys turn up for the men's breakfast yesterday. If you want to know more about men's ministry, then please speak to me or speak to Marcus. He's the, the Viking at the front. Um, it's good news that we had, um, we had, we've had record numbers at Cafe Tots for the past two or three weeks in a row. We've had loads of them, so much so that we've, we're wondering whether we can open a second session. That's brilliant news. It was good news that at Messy Church yesterday, families turned up that had never been before, and they had a brilliant time, and they heard teachers of the Bible. It's fantastic news. There is hope in the world. So don't be downtrodden. Don't be downcast by the news out there because God's in control. He's doing amazing things. He's building people's lives. He's using this church and us as his people to make a difference to our community. So God is good. I'm going to pray a blessing and then please join us for tea and coffee as we, uh, as we have some time of fellowship together. Father God, thank you for this morning and thank you that you are a God who brings good news. You sent your son into the world, the hope of the nations. Father, we thank you that we have been been called to, 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 to join this church and to play a part in the ministry here. And Father, we thank you that in our community we do see that hope prevailing. We do see people responding to the goodness of the church. And Father, we know the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of this church. So Father, bless us in all we do as a church and as individuals. May we go out into the world. May we glorify you. May we be blessed by you. And may we share that blessing with those that we meet. So Lord, we go in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And we say together in his name, Amen. Amen. God bless.